Welcome, creeps, to a very special episode of Brain Stew. I'm Justin. I'm Jeremy. And we are honored to be joined by film producer, comic book writer, and founder of Storm King Productions, Sandy King. First off, Sandy, we just wanted to thank you for taking the time to join us tonight on the show and ask you, how you doing today? Just great. Uh, you know, my eyes opened in the morning. That's a good start. And... Uh... Day's going fine so far, and it's great to see all of you. Yes, wonderful to see you as well. We're thrilled. We're absolutely looking forward to this. Yeah, Yeah. thank you so much for (laughs) for doing this. It's kind of been in the works for a while, so we're super happy to finally be sitting down to do this and kicking it right off to ask you, as a kid when you were growing up, what was your passion? We all have that one thing that we loved deeply. Was it comic books, movies, television, or was it a cultivation of all of the above? I lived in real isolated places, so for me it was reading and drawing. And um, so in, uh, whether I was at my grandfather's house up in the mountains in Colorado or at my parents' house in the mountains outside of LA, um, I always had a bookcase that I would just curl up by, my own little world. And um, I always drew and painted. And then when I was a kid in elementary school, I started making my own little books. Um, so I was pretty, uh, pretty much a loner. It was, it was always about that. Didn't get to the movies much. Um, we weren't near any comic shops, so I didn't see comics till I was a little older. Um, loved movies. But they were usually the big event movies. My dad and I would go to like How the West Was One and Lawrence of Arabia and later the Pink Panther. So yeah, they were mainstream movies until I wound up sneaking uh, uh, into uh, at other people's houses where we would watch the 50s uh, really bad sci-fi <laughs> or things that we were absolutely banned from watching and just scare ourselves stupid. That was pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it seems like a lot of your career has been rooted in, in horror and sci-fi. So what was your earliest memory of, of the horror and sci-fi genre? Was it sneaking into to people's houses, you know, and uh, watching these movies? <laughs> or uh, was there a specific film that you were absolutely captivated by in the genre? It was reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein when I was 10. And I just sucked it up and was immersed in it. So I went on to Dracula and that flipped me out because I had a, a mirror in my bedroom that would reflect back the dark uh, doorway kind of behind me. So I felt pretty safe. I could see whatever was coming. But then there was that Dracula bit with no reflection. So that flipped me out and that was great. And then Island of Dr. Moreau. And then, you know, just just going on through those things. So it was much more um, freaking myself out through books and, and classic stories. And, um, and then, you know, scaring myself with the original thing when the, the uh, uh, James Arness monster reaches through the, the doorway and they've got all the, the mattresses up and it's lighting on fire and all of that. It was perfect. I had nightmares forever. Classic. It's fun. It's funny you mentioning uh, the mirror and being afraid of the things that you were watching. Uh, when I was probably 
12 years old. I remember uh, I was in the basement and it, my room was all the way upstairs and I was turning all the lights off at nighttime. And I was convinced that Michael Myers was somehow in the shadows of my house. So I remember I had to turn my laundry room light off and I was like, okay, I'm going to turn the light off and then immediately run to the <laughs> stairs. Well, I misjudged where the door frame was. And I turned the light off and ran face first into the door frame. And when it happened, I was like, it was Michael. Michael got me. Here it is. So I went, <laughs> I went to uh, I went to school with a black eye the next day. People were like, what happened? And I was like, I'm, there's no way I'm telling them what really happened. So yeah, <laughs> that, those are, I mean, that's what you do. You drive yourself completely batshit and run into a wall and break your finger because your hand was out. Yep. Um, been there done that uh run for the stairs fall face first onto the stairs um all of it you know it all counts yet yet we choose to uh (laughs) yet we choose to embrace embrace these movies that we love so much still to this day 100 um sure they let you work out your fears and come out the other side and they do you know from what's actually appropriate ages, particularly, you know, early teens and you're 12 and you think you've got it made and you're, you're much hipper than your parents think you are. And you just crash and burn like a splatter pump. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a good thing. You're all Absolutely. right. And you process your fears. Um, it's what I try and do with the with the comics in particular, where we write to all ages on the different levels of books between Storm Kids and then the grown-up books. Um, because the grown-up books, no kids should be reading. They're uh, existential horror. They're things adults fear. And even when people come to me and say, oh, my kid watches Walking Dead. Eh, great. It's a soap. Good for them. Yeah. Um, but, but I hope to scare adults with the things that bug us with uh, issues of faith, life after death. You know, who am I when I look in the mirror? And little kids don't need to be fucked up with that. They need, uh, you know. Entry level horror, right? They need, they need to feel like they're part of the party when they're four to eight years old. They need ghost bunnies and bats in the sky and things where they're trying to tease each other to get a little bit scared, but not too scared. They just need to know they belong with everybody. And then when you hit that eight to 12 year old range, they're dealing with issues of separation and death because grandma or the dog died. And, you know, we can't avoid life events, but how do we train how to handle those? And where do we get the strength? And that's where horror for the younger people can help them be handheld through it. And then when we think we know it all in the young adult phase, um, the, the older teenagers, you know, until they're like 18, who really think they got it licked and they know nothing, you know, <laughs> you can go ahead and kill a few things and address a few more things where you let him experience that you really don't have this under control, but who are the real monsters? Uh, so you can find a monster, but the monster, much like the universal classic monsters, may not be the real bad guy. Absolutely. Maybe it's something else. So you can explore those issues as you go on. 
100 percent um it, it, moving along past that your childhood and that early entryway into the genre um before you kicked off your career you attended the ucla college of fine arts did you know early on that being in the movie industry was something that you wanted to do with your life and it was that a major passion of yours no i thought i was a painter and then i realized i was going to starve to death so uh i went over and hung out uh with everybody in animation and um that what then i said well this is a cool deal and everybody wanted at the time to go to work for disney because that was the peak of animation right. so i actually qualified and got accepted into character sketch there at the same time i was working uh with a couple of guys uh where we were making educational films animated educational films and and we also worked on star wars like every other animator in los angeles you know all the cal arts kids were doing lightsaber awards we were designing spaceships uh under the direction of dan o'bannon and you know I, my last educational film was uh earthquake prediction and my part was strange animal behavior so i was doing a frog going up and down a well bucket going <laughs> and i thought you know i'm kind of reclusive anyway this may be the end of the road for me like i'll wind up locked in a closet the rest of my life so i started hanging out with the live action people instead and uh told Disney I, I needed to do live action. And that's how I took a circuitous path over there. And, um, you know, wound up doing Corman flicks and, and uh, working with people I'd met up at uh, AFI and did all kind of low budget movies. So I just, it, it just became as diff different doors open. I had no life plan. I think those are all kind of uh, more modern deals of have to know what you want and go get it. Right. I think maybe you have to look for what doors are open a crack and look and see inside and maybe just go through. I didn't have any dead ends because all that experience went into who I am today and informed how I produce. I, I love that. <laughs> what a perfect analogy it's, on basically life. Like, yeah, beautiful. And I, I find... Yeah. The more that I do research or I hear stories about that time frame and that era in, in, in being an artist or working in the film industry, a lot of people kind of went the same direction where it was just they didn't necessarily know where they wanted to go, but they knew they had a hand in this in some way, shape or form, and it just led them down the path. Um, were, were you still in school when you booked your first gig as a script supervisor? And how did that come to be? And like, what was that like for you? Friends of mine were up at AFI and in graduate school at, at CalArts and, and UCLA. And so I was helping them out on movies at the same time as I was painting uh, platform shoes for hookers and rock and rollers at a place called Fred Slayton's. And, uh, you know, I was doing everything to pay my rent. And, um, there was a choice on this film up at AFI of either continuity or caterer. Well, I knew how to cook, but I knew continuity from 
hand drawing animation and working on animated film. I thought, well, that sounds a lot more interesting to me because you're working in the art end. I'll apply for that. And the fallback position is I'll be caterer. So I got the continuity thing. I had no idea, you know, exactly how that worked. So I bullshitted a, my way through an interview with the producing fellow who went on to become a major agent at CAA, Rand Holston. Um, and he said, what kind of book do you keep? Book. I said, the usual. And uh, he says, well, you say, you sound, we talk. Said, you sound perfect for the job. Great. So everybody was at lunch and I went into one of the editing rooms. I stole a couple of pages out of an open script book and went and Xeroxed them and put it back went back to try and figure out what everything was. And I thought, ah, I think I can figure this out. And another friend of mine, um, Dean Lyris from up at uh, CalArts, was working on the taking of Pelham 123 in New York with a famous script supervisor, uh, Nancy Tonnery. I said, Dean, can you have your script supervisor send me some pages from her book? And her forms wound up being what I used for the rest of my script supervising career. Oh, wow. And I put those things together, and that's how I did my first script supervising gig up at AFI. Um, and then I just branched that out and kept going and, and uh, had great time because at the time they had um, major cinematographers come in and shoot the fellow's films and mentor the cinematography fellows that were coming up. And they had Panavision equipment, and we did all kinds of stuff. Um, so, you know, I got a pretty good education by accident up there. And then that moved me into doing some of the Corman stuff. And then the next other step I had was I was out selling sandwiches for door-to-door -door sandwich company called the movable feast and my route was la cienega where all the rock uh, the uh, uh, recording studios were and i blew tires and i was fed up with the whole thing one of my clients there was alice cooper so i dropped off oh, one wow. of of sandwiches to them and walked up the street to where my boyfriend at the time was uh working as a cameraman on a John Cassavetes movie. So I walked over to their location at this restaurant with my other basket of sandwiches. And I said, okay, guys, have some sandwiches. I quit and um, went to work loading uh, uh, Mitchell BNC camera for them. And their script supervisor got in the union that day and had to quit. And they said, you know anything about script supervision? I went, yeah, I'm in. And that's how I got that gig doing Killing of a Chinese Bookie. So, wow. you know, it's all those kinds of things that used to happen to those of us starting. And Everything just falling into Happenstances, place. Yeah. yeah. I mean, were the sandwiches good, though? Because that, I, 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 I got to know that. They were, they were good sandwiches. They were, well, in those days, expensive sandwiches. And you know, you'd go into the different recording studios. You know, Billy Preston used to like the roast beef sandwiches. Um, and, you know, and what was left, the problem was you bought them 
in the morning for a certain price. And then you, if you didn't sell them all, you were stuck with sandwiches. So I had to learn how to like essentially wash pieces of bread and cheese and stuff and learn how to make other things out of it, the insides of sandwiches to make dinner that night. It was kind of sad. I, love, I was going to say, because when you said door-to-door -door sandwiches, I'm like... I would love I a door-to-door -door sandwich. I, I never right heard of now. that, but that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that'll be our next gig, Justin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always figured that no matter how bad my life got, I could always go back to selling sandwiches. <laughs> well, uh, so talking about things from from back then, you know, uh, TV movies used to be a really big deal, uh, and sometimes could be a launching pad for up and coming actors. Um, I remember growing up in the the late '80s and, and the '90s, like TV movies were a really big deal, and sometimes you know these TV movies would would cast an actor, and it would become a launching pad for them. Um, you worked on a TV movie with Jamie Lee Curtis post Halloween called "She's in the Army Now." Do you remember? Uh, or recall uh, any moments while working on that project where you went, wow, she has the it factor. Like she, she's going to be something. She was great. But you have to remember that in that same cast of, of girls in the platoon was Melanie Griffith, uh, Julie Carmen, Kathleen Quinlan. And these were all stars. And, um, the one who was really brave was Julie Carmen, who who shaved her head for during a scene in the movie and did it for real. Um, they were they were all game, and Jamie, while she was really good, has in the decades since really mastered her craft more. She brought her. Uh, <clears throat> maturity in the real world into her acting and i think that the jamie you see now is um the amalgam of all the parts all the parts she played the directors she worked with and wisdom from her real life um and what she puts out in the world, I think, is very much brought into her art. So the Jamie from back in her 20s um, is, was not the same Jamie as the one who brings it all to say the latest Halloweens, the everything everywhere all at once, sure. the, all of these other more complex roles. I mean, she was great and talented and you knew you'd see more of her, but that was the same case with Melanie and the same case with these, with these other women who, um, really rocked it. It was a unique cast. Right. So that at that moment, since she was so green, there was no way you would possibly be able to fathom like, Hey, this girl and you know, 30 some plus years is going to be an Oscar winner. No, no, you know, I don't think, I, I just think, you know, that she knew she was great in the gig. She was fun to be around. Uh, she was kind. She got along well. But, and, and this is, 
it, this is, shouldn't be earth shaking to the world, but in those days, women were so competitive with each other, that they were nastier in hell and usually tried to sink each other's ships. That was a unique group of girls who all supported each other. And they were crawling on their bellies through mud and climbing and doing all these marine training, army training maneuvers. And they were the best. And um, so you were just really relieved that we we had a good time with them and they were all, all terrific. And, um, you know, I, I think that that was kind of a, a blessed show in the regard of the amount of talent, the amount of, of uh, oh, what you'd say in rodeo. They had a lot of try in them. And um, I believe it was High Averback was the director on that. And he was an extraordinary director. So the whole thing just really came together. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, you know, watching her win the Oscar uh, felt like, you know, such a, not only monumental win for for her, but for the horror genre and for us horror fans, you know, watching our, our scream queen get an Oscar. I mean, I, I was in bed watching it, you know, with my wife and just full on crying. I'm pretty sure we were all just like crying. At yeah, that crying. Moment, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, she, I think, felt such pressure from the success. When you have two parents that were as illustrious as hers, when you uh, you think at one point in your life you're going to be in the dustbin of movies, and then suddenly you're you're gigantic. When uh, you know, I think that we all rooted for Jamie. You know, my husband was screaming. You know, <laughs> he adores her, um, and I think that you. You know, come on, it's home team time. You know, you want to see your your friends and your your uh, proteges and stuff just rock that. Uh, so it's cool. Yeah, yeah, no two ways around it. On the subject of watching movies, you know, having your hand in being a script supervisor for such a large part of your career, I have to ask: Is it sometimes difficult for you to watch movies without? you know, picking apart continuity issues or things that you find wrong with them? No, just if they suck. You know, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Now, I, I have two ways of movie watching. I always watch a movie the first time through just as a fan with popcorn. Um, <clears throat> I think that, you know, modern fandom has gotten really into tearing apart movies. And I would love to see any one of those jokers make it from the title to the end themselves. They are for the most part gutless and would never dare to put themselves out there and risk not being perfect. Um, it takes a great deal of courage even to make a bad movie. Um, I've made a couple of those myself. I was going to so, say, uh... I, was just, I didn't want to call you out, but I was going to say, I know that my co-host has made at least one bad movie. I know if I enjoyed it, but. You know, um, and a lot of people that make great movies got a chance to make their bad movies in film school and, you know, go through the paces, um, learn their stuff, make their mistakes, whatever it is. Uh, you learn a lot from failure. Yeah. But, um, no, I don't like picking apart people's movies. Yeah. 
Um, and I always give that filmmaker the benefit of the doubt and sit down ready to be entertained. Uh, I don't, yeah, I know how to spot stuff if I want to, but it's not nice. <laughs> Do, do you feel like, because uh, for me, if I'm captivated by a story or performance, uh, by any eye candy, I, I typically don't notice a lot of continuity stuff. I find that I start to notice things like that if I'm out of the story. Yeah. Like if, I, if I'm looking at things in the background of a movie uh, and not paying attention to the dialogue and the story, I, I think it's because the movie's starting to lose me a little or bit. Or if it's not as engaging as it could potentially be in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I get really annoyed when people don't look through the lens while they're shooting because they think they'll fix it in post. Um, I get annoyed at the time when it's fixable. Why didn't you, you can't fix everything in post. And, um, you know, I, I have a show I'm working on right now where I wasn't there for a couple hours in the morning. Cause I had another, another show to, tend to and I showed up and I looked at something and there's a scene framing of there's a fireplace in the background and all I can see is what looks like a flaming dick in the fireplace <laughs> and I'm like okay so what's the flaming dick in the fireplace there's a fire dick right now <laughs> and you know there's a whole film crew sitting around and and one of the executive producers is standing there and I go what's that and he goes oh my god i go no it's not oh my god go see what it is we need to get it out of there and somebody walks back to me and says oh you don't have to worry about it it's the basket the logs are in in the fireplace i go okay you're gonna plan to put a subtitle there say no problem this is a metal basket with a reflection i said once they see the flaming dick they will never unsee it and for the whole scene they're going to be looking at the flaming dick. Now, you don't have a problem. This is a cheap one to take out and post. But that's just stupid and inexcusable. Yeah, yeah. So those things you will see me get more annoyed at than when the mistake comes through in a finished film and you realize, ah, oh, they had somebody who never saw the flaming dick. Yeah. Do you think that's a more of a modern issue than something that would have happened maybe you know, 20, 30 years ago in filmmaking. Definitely. They're lazier. Yeah. I mean, especially because film is expensive. Now, most of the time it's digital. So yeah. I feel like maybe the keen eye is not there while filming, filming in digital. Cause it's like, well, that there, you know, it's, there's no reel of film, you know, you're filming digital, you know, as long as you have battery life and, and storage on your camera, you're good. Cost you time. Yep. Time is money. Time is money. And uh, you decide you're going to have to do a digital paint out of the flaming dick that costs you money. So you're being lazy and dumb. Yep. You know, yep. I, I have very little patience for that attitude. Well, on I that, on that subject, I, teacher. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, thinking about the difference between that and the fact that you've worked with some of the most legendary filmmakers of all time, John Hughes, Michael Mann, Francis Ford Coppola, and one of our favorite filmmakers of all time, John Carpenter. Um, seeing how every filmmaker's process is different from the next, 
when approaching being involved with, with a, a project such as whatever it may be, do you always approach the project in the same way or do you prepare differently based on the filmmaker and the material? It's a two part question. The fundamentals are the same. The prep to a certain degree, the prep is the same. My side of the game has to be ready to serve their side. Um, I'm there to clean up after the elephants and make sure that their vision is served. It's the direct, it, there can only be one vision, the director's vision. <clears throat> My job is to make sure that the crew has the tools that they need to serve that vision. I have to make sure we're all pulling the same way on the rowboat. So um, I'm supposed to make sure from the budgeting to the scheduling uh, to accommodations and whether the caterer is good enough that everybody has what they need to work. So on that front, essentially, the preparation is the same. What's different is the director, his vision, and my communication with them. What do you need? What are you seeing? Um, we only have this much money, so I'm going to give you a, 10, a 5 10 and $25 solution to this, and you decide which of these scenes gets the $5 and which gets the 25. And it's more about my ability to dialogue with them and get inside their individual heads because the head of Michael Mann is far different than the head of a Coppola, which is way different than uh, the head of uh, John Carpenter. And it's just a matter of tiptoeing through those brains and emotions to see how you make them feel secure so they can do their best job. Very good. Very good. Yeah, that, well, well said. Um, so in your career, you've had your hand in some of my favorite movies literally oh, here ever he goes. made. Here he um, goes. I'm, go I'm going in. Big Trouble, Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live, Body Bags, and The Mouth of Madness, and John Carpenter's Vampires. Which of those films did you have the most fun making, and which is your personal favorite? Oh man, you know. I know that's that's tough, right? That's the hardest question. That old thing of, of you bringing <laughs> up my kids, and I can't choose one over another. Um, yeah, some are definitely more fun than others. Uh, you know, I think I think we had a fair amount of fun doing Prince of Darkness because it it wasn't a, it was largely shot on stages, and that's more controllable. Um, and having Donald Pleasance and, and Victor Wong on the same set, oh, you know, wow. you, can't, you can't beat that. Um, and uh, uh, so in, in terms of ease, that was a pretty easy one. Um, you know, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, was fun because of all the the real cultural uh things that were brought in all of the chi different chinese from mainland china hong kong taiwan and all over the united states all the the uh, martial artists uh masters grandmasters 
um that was pretty cool um i i, I gotta tell you something that's insane about big trouble in little china is that uh literally yesterday i purchased a photo op for a convention in june with james hong in full low pan makeup and costume at 94 years old that old op opportunist keeps on ticking i i i'm here for it i'm so i'm i'm going to texas just for james hong just to get that photo op so <laughs> he's a wily old fart he's he's he used used to snap his fingers for me to come over with the script book and then he would lean on it and he was going you are one step from having me kick your feet out under. <laughs> um, and yeah it's really funny because when he wasn't playing that role and i'd worked with him on on uh, nine to five where he's playing a businessman or something sweet as could be a pussycat, but God being that character of Lopan, he was very expansive. Um, but God bless his heart. He's finally getting his due. I mean, he's done oh, absolutely. so many movies and hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. And been, you know, a mentor for so many of the young Asian actors coming up who really didn't have other people to turn to for so long. Um, yeah, he has, he has an acting school. Uh, I believe that he, that he runs. That he and, um, and Victor would try and find how many, uh, Chinese swear words they could sneak into scenes. <laughs> and I had a list. The only one I can really remember right now is Do which means your mother fucks dogs. <laughs> um, oh my God. And uh, apparently, these are traditional greetings between old Chinese men. However, since this was worldwide distribution, uh, they could not use these phrases. And so they would try and sneak them in. And I got so I could, I can't remember the other four but i could pick them out and just kind of go nope yeah i have to go back and redo it but then i would have to listen for if they'd found anything else to sneak in in its place and that was their oh. cat and mouse game with the language she's so just kind of go, oh man oh here we God. go oh I, I i absolutely love that it's hilarious um so you are are known very famously for designing the most iconic images in motion picture alien film history in my opinion you designed the aliens from they live and is that correct well yeah i designed the original ghoul head which was yeah. essentially a half rotten um skull yeah. flesh on half of it meaning that they were were rotting from inside the person who legitimately deserves the credit for the final image that you see on screen um he took that design and he made it the the satiric image that you all know and love of the blue and purple with the silver eyes is frank carasosa who was the makeup artist and uh, he deserves a lot more credit than anyone gives him 
for figuring out uh, that great fine line that that makes it satirical, that makes it, um, yeah, it, it's it, it's uh, as Roddy Piper would have said, ribbon on the square. Um, th these are the aliens. These are how they disintegrate in our atmosphere and stuff. But Frank took it to the to the purple and blue with the silver eyes. Do, but do you still have, do you still hmm? have your your uh, sketches uh, from? They are somewhere those? in a file that none of us has been able to find for wow. uh, some years. Um, yeah, I had mm. it, and for years it was pinned up on a board in the office. And when the office moved, it's you know thrown into a box. It'll surface somewhere. Um, well, it's gonna. It'll be a happy day when when you guys when you guys find that. Yeah, place. it's essentially a a half skull uh, deal that reveal the muscles underneath and, yeah. and that kind of thing. I mean, because that design is known all over the world. I mean, I know I have friends that have it tattooed on them. Uh, many of them have it tattooed on them. Anytime I go to an event. People are wearing the T-shirts with it on it, and it's just synonymous with a decade, and not just the movie, but it's culturally like a really huge thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, there, there, there was that. That was our message movie, and um, there, there was a purpose in having them, you know, be people going wrong. Well, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, I just rewatched it two days ago and I, it, it's one of those movies. Jeremy, are you looking that, around? Cause you have like a full size prop of that in your basement. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have a lot of, of they live merchandise and, and you, you are the, the final say in a lot of the merchandising on that is, is, is that correct? That no. like art, art universal, universal okay. decided that they got to do all that. Okay. I don't um, know how, how a distributor went to deciding they made all the decisions on merchandising, but out of all the things there are to worry about in this world and bombs going off in Uvalde, there's only so many things worth fighting about. Yeah. Uh, one of one of my best friends, uh, who's a friend of, of Justin's as well, actually did the official uh, most recent uh, Blu-ray steelbook artwork for where they live and uh with roddy piper with the foot on the television and it's uh one of the most beautiful pieces of of they live our work that's out there so um it's got to be fun seeing this thing that you created you know uh transition through the years and and people still just loving this thing that you guys created it's awesome now i just hope they get the message and do something about it yeah, so you founded Storm King Comics 10 years ago. Uh, you're the first female artist to ever create their own comic studio. That is a pretty monumental achievement. Um, what was your inspiration to become a comic book creator, and how important is representation in the genre to you? Well, you know, I didn't do it intentionally. Um, it was that each comic book publisher I started to okay, take the first comic we'll, asylum uh, we'll to, you know, 
would would start saying, oh, well, for $50,000, we can do an Ashcan version for San Diego Comic-Con. And I said, and it said, so if you went to Universal and you got the funding from them, I went, first of all, I took the story away from Universal. They're not going to give me $50,000 to make a comic book. But secondly, do you think I'm stupid because I'm a girl or because I'm from the movie side of entertainment? Because I didn't just fall off the fucking turnip truck. So how about this? Fuck you. And so that was the end of of one of the big um, comic publishers. And then I'd have another one and they would talk about just wanting to make a movie. And I said, I know how to make movies. I want to put out a comic book. So that was the end of another big um, publisher meeting. And I thought, okay, um, I figured out how to make a comic. Who are these jokers and why do they think so little of us? Uh, let's just pub- start a publishing company and, and do it ourselves. And that's how it came about. And as far as being the first woman uh, founder of a publishing company, it was by accident. Sure. Um, I mean, it was a sad state of affairs when someone first informed me that I was. Because you sat there and went, really? So yeah. it's either what's wrong in culture or it's what's wrong with all the women that they think they have to wait for a man to, to fund them in publishing. Sure. It's like, come on. You know, just do it and quit being afraid. Um, and does it matter to me that I'm it? Not really, unless I'm trying to find something to brag about that day. But, <laughs> sure. But I don't think I don't think anybody really gives a shit. But you, you, I would say yeah. I do personally. I think honestly, if it was out there a little bit more, I think. A lot of people would actually, especially considering, you know, the the time we're in right now and representation being so important to so many people. I I mean, I'm just saying I do think I do think that a lot of people it would mean a lot to them to hear that. Well, good. I'll let you wear a sandwich board that says she's heard. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, what matters more to me is that the comics, you know, it took a lot of years to get the comics community to accept that I came in peace. I just wanted to make good comics. I wasn't trying to strip mine the industry to take advantage of them. And my paychecks uh, come in on time and don't bounce. And I think I got more respect for the fact that their paychecks came on time and were good than I did for anything else. So that's okay. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And you know, you've launched Asylum, you've launched Tales for a Halloween Night, Tales of Science Fiction, all these different comic books uh, that you're coming out with. That the the artwork is is fantastic. The stories are amazing. I was instantly sucked into Asylum. Um, absolutely love that that franchise and uh, or or that series. And um, I got to see firsthand the love for what you and, and your team have created. I, I went out to the golden apple signing in, in 2021. And I mean, the line is miles long and it's, it's just, it's awesome to, to, you know, have been there and been a part of it, you know, for years I had, I was like, I want to go, I want to go. And I've been collecting, you know, comic books from you guys for over 10 years. And, you know, I, 
I, I met you for the first time at New York Comic Con in uh, 2017, which was a super big deal to me. And I've just really loved the stories that you're creating. Um, I mean, is it wild putting on these events and seeing, you know, these such the response, you know, the the line going for miles long? That's that's got to be super gratifying as an artist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, yeah. You, you, come on, it beats the alternative. Yeah. You know, you, you hope you make people happy. There's nothing better than when someone's gotten excited. They really wanted one of our books and it's just come out before a convention. And I remember one woman getting it and holding it to her chest and dancing around. I thought, wow, that's cool. And that's what's great about doing comics. You get to see the fans' response right away and know whether you've pleased them. And, you know, from an ego side, yeah, you're invincible for five minutes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's nice. And, you know, you know we're going to hit a clunker book. It's the law of averages. You know we're going to do something we thought was really cool and everyone goes, eh. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is to share something that we think is cool, that we think takes you on another journey that will be scary, interesting, uh, fun, and maybe scratch that itch if you come to come to us that isn't duplicating what else is being done we don't do superheroes are being done great by other people we don't do manga there's a lot of it out there um but what we do i think is unique and different and uh hopefully people dig it well apparently they are and currently you've got 10 years in the book right now with storm king and we know you're set to launch multiple new projects this year what are you most excited for people to see? And what do you see in the next 10 years? What do you have in the works for fans? Well, I had to write it down because I, I forget which ones are. Yeah, we ha, we we start our books uh, three years out because they take a couple of years to put together and then you have to submit them eight months in advance. Um, so that they do whatever they do and the reviewers can see them and all that. Uh, right now, we've got, we just released a book called Fetch that's for middle grade kids. Um, and that just came out in February. We have uh, Envoy issue one is out right now. That's uh, by David J. Scow. It's, um, and you know, every time he does something, it's, it's edgy and, and weird. I'm, and, I'm a huge fan of his. Yeah. He's and awesome. so I think Envoy is, is going to rock people. We've got two and three coming up out on that one soon. And the trade paperback of it will be ready for uh, San Diego. Um, we have internet interference pattern out right now. Oh no. At the end of March, um, and that's by Dennis Calero. It's another sci-fi. I felt like we'd been lagging a little in our sci-fi uh, department, but that's going to be pretty cool. We've got um, under the Night Terrors, 
uh, division. We've got Usher Down by uh, Jason Henderson and Greg Scott. Um, that's pretty cool on the the Usher Down um, uh, mythology. The art's really great. Um, and the story's cool. We've got Tales for Halloween Night, uh, number nine, coming up for New York City. And this time uh, we collected, you know, Frank Thierry every year has been doing a Brooklyn-oriented story. So I collected all the Brooklyn stories by Thierry and uh, with art by Kat Staggs. So we're going to have a Thierry book out in time for uh, New York. Well, that awesome. should be kind of cool. Wonderful. And um, we're starting a new uh, division called uh, Dark and Twisted. And that's for, uh, I'm going to call it the serial killer division. It's mm, not. This sounds tasty to me. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sounds up our alley. Yeah. The first book out is going to be uh, Death Mask by um, Amanda Divert and Kat Staggs. It's shaping up really nicely. It's, it's exciting. It's a scary thriller. And um, Stanley and the Haunted House, part of our um, our Stanley books, I don't know if you're familiar with them. That's for our little kids. Mm -hmm. And um, the first one was nominated for an Eisner for Best uh, Standalone Comic. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, you figure. All the, all the, the scary big comics I do, and we get nominated for the four-year-old book. But that's um, something, Jeremy, for you, you know, you've got yeah, that's, a, a, a two daughters that are young that that would be perfect for. Yeah, my um, my oh, oldest yeah. daughter, Scarlett, is seven and she uh, she just went to a horror convention with me for the first time. And I mean, my whole basement is just horror movie memorabilia. So she's grown up with it. It's not it's not abnormal or scary for her. So she went to a horror convention with me recently and had the best time ever and you know i've let her watch some some kid-friendly horror like like little monsters with fred savage from the mm -hmm. 90s and and things like that and she she has begged me to let her watch halloween and i'm i'm like she's like i want to watch michael myers and i'm like no you can't not yet <laughs> a couple more years couple yeah. more years well we've got books for her we've got um we've got stanley um He's two books in now. And then we've got the third Stanley book coming up for New York. And then we have um, uh, the Yard House game that Steve Niles and his wife wrote um, that has some ghost cats in it and stuff. That gives them all something for around Halloween time that's, you know, got some spooky stuff in it, but nothing to send, the, nothing your wife will hate you for. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's good. And then going into the eight to twelve year olds, uh, we have Fetch, where um, a little girl's dog dies, who is her best friend, and a substitute <clears throat> teacher gives her a book on Greek mythology, but it's a magic book and it has a portal, and she recognizes it from someplace near her house, and. Um, she goes there and it takes her down to Hades and Odysseus. But what she doesn't realize is her little brother, who's autistic, has followed her through the portal. So she has to take care of him. She's trying to find Pirate or Dog. And Odysseus, 
who it turns out the substitute teacher is Athena in disguise. She wants to kick Odysseus out of Hades and back to where he's supposed to be as a hero in the Elysian fields and make him do one last quest. And so he's saddled with these kids and they're working their way through where they're not supposed to be, but everybody recognizes the magic book and the, the mandate from Athena. So there's that. And it's really good for teaching kids about, we all go through things, but here's how you navigate them. Sure. And um, the other one is Grimm's, Grimmstown Terror Tales. And that one has, it's like a Hansel and Gretel story. You've got twin brother and sisters come home, house is covered in, in glowing green slime, parents are missing, there's a monster in the closet, but he turns out to be Grub the Booger Troll, who actually oh, is there to help save them. And what it shows them is they have to go find the parents and they are empowered and they find empowerment through what they're able to do themselves. And so it's a whole adventure. Um, so that works pretty well for that age group. That, that's, I, I've had the biggest smile on my face the whole time that you've, you've been telling uh, us about these stories because I know that she's going to love, love those. So I can't wait to pick those up. Oh yeah. And, uh, and that has, a, that has a plush toy, uh, booger troll. That's very huggable and um and has hairy armpits um, <laughs> i heard someone whispering hairy armpits back there yeah that's his favorite part of grub the booger troll <laughs> so you know and then we go to the the young adults um where they think they have it all under control but it's that becomes you know finding a monster in the forest but is he the monster or is something else the monster? And that's when you start examining, you know, the monster within, the monster without, who's really bad. And so all of that becomes the training wheels for when you get to my stuff. And um, I think that, that that gives the right training wheels and the right ability to safely navigate instead of jumping the line and winding up in over your head and then maybe not adoring horror when you grow up yeah I, I, honestly I, I feel like jeremy i can speak for the both of us because we both found horror at a very young age we're both massive fans of the genre we've just loved it our entire lives but there wasn't really anything like that for us i mean i think in our early teens we had the goosebumps books i was gonna and, say and, goosebumps and, was the closest in thing. that but i mean yeah. I, don't, I don't recall anything at a super early age, like, you know, being accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Available yeah, at all. It was scary duck tales and stuff, which were fun when you were real little, but trying to give training wheels the whole way through and still let them find scares, still let them have a relief laugh and, and, and take it through and get to that stage. Um, I still need a little more of where, we challenge them a touch to cover their eyes and put the book away for a little while and then come back to it. You know, 
there's there's one other step I feel we can make in there between the middle grade and and the young adult that we haven't quite filled that gap yet. But I thought it was astounding we got the other ages in. Um, <laughs> but I'm bringing in you know Steve Niles and Louis Simonson wrote a great Guardians of the Galaxy kind of sci-fi one, and you know, I don't let them talk down to kids. Yeah, that's fantastic. Sounds so amazing to me. As we're wrapping up, ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to thank you again, Sandy, so, so much for joining us and letting us in on your world and what you're up to right now with the comics, the history of you being involved with movies. I know there was one question, Jeremy, you wanted to ask before we're completely finished, and it had to do with any possible props lying around the house. Yeah, it, it, you know, <laughs> because you collect props and you collect memorabilia sure, yeah. and stuff. And I know yeah. you wanted to ask that collect, you know, I always find it interesting, you know, when, when filmmakers and and such work on these these great movies with these great props. It, it's always a great question to ask is, you know, did you keep any mementos from the films? Uh, I find it fascinating when people are like, oh, yeah, I've kept stuff. And I also find it fascinating when, like, uh, you have uh, the, the director, Tom Holland, from Fright Night, where he's like, we didn't care about movie props. He was like, literally, I did bring a Chucky doll home and my dog ate it. And there was no val back then there was no value in it. It was just a thing from a from a show that I did. And it didn't care. He goes now thinking about the fact that my dog ate a Chucky doll. It makes me very sad knowing what that means to people and, and monetarily what that means. So you're uh, for. <laughs> yeah, abso absolutely. So did, have you kept any like fun mementos or props from, from any of your movies that you've worked on? Well, you realize particularly in low budget days, almost everything was rented and you returned it. Yeah. Um, and then after that, the studios kept everything. You had to account for everything and you know, all that. So, I'm sure executives are still driving around in Ghosts of Mars uh, dune buggies. Um, I love those. I, uh, I I have a Ghost of Mars uh, mining helmet in my basement. So, uh -huh. fun fact. Fun fact. Um, but those are things that had to be essentially stolen by lot employees from vaults and snuck out. Um, it's... Uh, you know, like we turned in uh, uh, cubes, ruby earrings, and they disappeared before I even went back to put more stuff in the vault. And you're just like, look, um, we could have protected these things, but you guys are so positive you're going to be ripped off by the filmmakers that you ripped them off yourselves. Um, we have, you know, we had... Uh, Valak's coat. Um, I I had certain uh, certain pieces of uh, things that we thought we might need for reshoots. So you'd have a single wardrobe thing. We do have the Berzier cross from Vampires. You That's brought that to a, to an appearance with you uh, recently, didn't you? Down in San Diego, we had Valak's coat on a mannequin with the Berzier cross. Um, we had Nicotero made a second Mrs. Pickman for me to give my husband, um, from in the mouth of madness. And she made an appearance at San Diego as well. 
but she's real fragile. So that that's pretty much her last stand. Yeah. Um, we did used to have the entire wall of monsters from in the wall uh, mouth of madness that chased uh, Sam Neil down the hall, but I donated that to the um, Boy Scouts put on a big Halloween fair. And it seemed better that a bunch of people got to enjoy it. And I, we kept Meatball, the one uh, Cyclops monster. Mm-hmm. And he lives in the warehouse for no good reason. Um, <laughs> we, uh, for the most part, you know, there's very minimal stuff that was usually saved in case of reshoots. Um, but um not what people would think because like i said most of the stuff goes back to either the studio or to the rental house um we're not technically collectors yeah oh i i like i said i always find it fascinating because sometimes people keep things and sometimes they don't and it sounds like you guys have some amazing ones i mean the uh the cross the jacket miss pickman i mean those are amazing pieces of of film history yeah they're nice and and we try and treat them nicely and have the wardrobe you know preserved like people put wedding dresses in and that kind of stuff but um you know all good things come to an end i mean it's it's they fulfilled their function in life they are on film yeah or they live forever yeah we couldn't thank you enough seriously thank you for taking your time out of your day to talk to two lonely fans that run this podcast um it means so much to us and i know it'll mean so so much to our listeners uh ladies and gentlemen if you can find out what's going on with storm king you can go to their website www.stormkingcomics.com and their social media pages Sandy, is there anywhere else on the internet where our fans and followers can find out about what you're up to and what Storm King is going to be doing in the near future? Where do I post it? Is, is my website back up? We've been rebuilding my website. Stormkingproductions.com will be coming soon. Stormkingproductions.com will be coming soon. Right now, I think it, it shows Bob the Gargoyle with a wrench. Um, yeah, we've been redoing everything to get things out there, but usually under stormkingcomics.com, um, they sneak in as much stuff as they can and post on, uh, usually on Instagram and on Facebook. And you're on Twitter, right? You're on Twitter personally. I'm on Twitter, but you usually just hear far left diatribes from me. Um, (laughs) But you're on there, though, in case anyone wants to follow you. I am on there, Storm King SKC. We've also just sort of done the the Reddit. And Reddit. So that's that's the more politically correct minions, uh, making sure I don't say anything (laughs) terrible. Well, we're not a politically correct show in any way or whatever. But, I mean, thank you again, though. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. And I, I have to, uh, I have to also throw out Antoine yes. Johnson. Thank you for uh, helping coordinate this, and everyone that was involved in coordinating this. Uh, Antoine is a amazing human being. So uh, Antoine, thank you, Antoine. Was great, and 
my other partner in crime, the managing editor of Storm King uh, Comics, is here. Look up and say hi. There he is. There he is. That's Sean Sobchak. Hey, Sean. And uh, without the two of them, believe me, nothing would get done. Well, we appreciate them. We appreciate you so, so much. And I know our listeners will not be able to fathom what's in for them. They don't even know what's going to hit them. So thanks again for being a part of this with us. And thanks to our listeners for listening. I'm Justin. I'm Jeremy. I'm Sandy. And yes, <laughs> Sandy King. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, you are. we were blessed, so wonderfully blessed on this episode. And as always, as we like to ask you to keep it, keep it creepy. creepy.